This podcast contains descriptions of alcohol and drug abuse, sexual assault, adult themes, violence, and explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. On June 3, 2011, a young woman named Lauren Spear disappeared after a night out with friends at Indiana University, never to be seen again. As a fellow IU student who grew up with similar circumstances, her story has haunted me. There were so many nights my friends and I could have ended up like her. This is the story about what happened that fateful night at a historic university and a quaint Midwest town with a hidden dark side. This is Finding Lauren. Before we get into the interview with the Spears investigator, Mike Cirovolo, I want to thank you so much for listening and for your support of Lauren and her family. By listening, you are keeping Lauren's story alive and keeping attention on a case that deserves answers. My hope has always been just that, to keep people talking. This is how we ultimately find Lauren. What happened to Lauren Spear? is an unimaginable tragedy that unfortunately happens frequently to both men and women in every community. Many families never find closure. It's a cycle that must be stopped. I also wanted to address a few things for anyone who might have questions or additional comments. My team and I finished the initial recording just before the 10th anniversary of Lauren Spears' disappearance. So certain bits of information and statements that came out after the recording were not included. Honestly, we're hoping that our work here becomes outdated and obsolete because that would mean we've found answers. But while we're stuck in this loop, I'd like to take a moment to clarify them now. As we know, June 3rd, 2021 marked a decade since Lauren Spear was last seen. Lauren's mother, Charlene Spear, took to their official Facebook page to share a heartbreaking message. Ten years ago today, in the early hours of June 3rd, 2011, Lauren became a missing person. What started as an evening with friends ended tragically for Lauren and for our family. There is no video evidence proving Lauren ever turned the corner at 11th and College Avenue around 4.30 a.m., there has never been any suspect named. My heart goes out to anyone searching for a missing loved one. When you are in it, you can't see beyond it. You try everything humanly possible to get answers. You are willing to work from first light until you collapse exhausted at the end of the day. You read everything written, every blog, every Facebook post, every tweet, every comment at the end of every article you have access to, just hoping someone will post something to move your case forward. You open your door to the worst of humanity, desperate to believe their convincing lies, but I think the worst offense comes from those who hold the answers and refuse to share them. You are gullible. You are exposed to things you've never known about and wish you had never learned about. I empathize with you. I walk in your shoes. I carry the same burden. I wish we never had to experience this. 
If you are fortunate, you will find that there are just as many compassionate people. They work beside you just as tirelessly. They step in when you cannot. They take risks. They put their lives on hold. They use every avenue at their disposal to help you. They keep in touch on those most difficult days. They remind you that you are not alone in this nightmare. They ask for nothing in return. This is what I know. What happened to Lauren was shocking. It is inconceivable to have spoken to Lauren hours before discovering it would be for the last time. Shocking that someone so loved could vanish without a trace, but entirely possible. It did happen, and 10 years later, I still struggle. The space that once held hopes and dreams for Lauren will never heal. It is replaced by an ache fueled by the not knowing. I have learned to manage my days, months, and years, but in an instant, something will happen which sends me reeling back to the day it all happened. I try my best, I will survive, I will never forget. I do not need a day like today to remember because every day is a day of remembrance. I am especially grateful to Rob and Rebecca, my husband, my daughter, who share in this tragic loss and without whom I could not have survived. I end as always, hoping today is the day and reminding the reader that anything small could be big. Lauren, lost but never forgotten, forever in our hearts. The Bloomington Chief of Police, Michael Dekoff, also posted a video statement on the 10-year anniversary. He said, quote, There has always been something to follow up on. In the last three to four years, investigators have executed at least 10 search warrants and received approximately 800 tips. Dekoff also alluded to the fact that in the last 10 years, the department has received thousands of tips, which, as we know, have not panned out to be anything of substance. As I've said, we are always back at square one. I had the opportunity to travel to Indiana a few weeks ago and was able to observe the changes in the school due to COVID and the passing of 10 years. Many of the details included in episode five and the unrecognizable culture was based off the 2020 school year. However, things are more normal now, relatively speaking, due to many students being vaccinated. But the environment felt very tame especially for a Saturday in the early school year. What stood out most to me was that Smallwood Plaza has since rebranded itself to the Avenue on College, and the corner of 11th and College, where Lauren was last seen, now has many security cameras. I also want to mention that on September 15, 2021, the Bloomington police began investigating the death of Mia Roy, a 20-year-old student at Indiana University who was found dead in her off-campus apartment. I haven't seen any updates on the autopsy or toxicology report, but the police indicated there was no evidence of self-harm or foul play, which makes you wonder, could this have been due to excessive partying as well? I have received a lot of feedback from listeners who disagreed with the narrative in episode two, or wondered why I devoted an entire episode talking about the party culture and the environment of Bloomington. While appreciated, as a student who walked in very similar shoes as Lauren, I felt these details were imperative for a deeper analysis of the case. I wanted to transport you to the mindset of a college student and reveal the priorities of this moment in time, especially for listeners who have no knowledge of Bloomington, Indiana. 
I also acknowledge not every student was behaving this way, but this was a world that Lauren and so many college students across the country are living in. For those who disagreed with the description of Bloomington, again, it's all perspective, but I don't want anyone to misconstrue my love for Indiana University or the incredible opportunity I was given by being a student there. Whether you agree or not, the only thing that should matter is that Lauren Spear was a 20-year-old college student who is still missing today. By telling her story, we continue to bring awareness. By telling her story from a new perspective, maybe we'll trigger new thoughts. Someone knows something. The unfortunate reality is we have no new information. We are stuck in this loop until someone comes forward. For those looking for more in-depth information or details, the following is my interview with Detective Mike Cirovolo. Mike Cirovolo, I am the chief investigator at Bo Deedle and Associates in New York, and I am the former president of Bo Deedle and Associates. What are the current theories or possibilities of what happened to Lauren that evening, as far as your knowledge? Well, the three scenarios are Lauren passed, she had a bad heart, she had a lot to drink that night, um, and she may have died of alcohol poisoning. And the boys up on 11th Street, meaning uh, Rosenbaum, Beth, Corey Rossman, and the two visitors that were staying with uh, Rosenbaum in his apartment, two visitors from Michigan, Lesnick and another boy, perhaps they uh, disposed of her body secretly. Scenario number two would be that Jesse Wolf, her boyfriend, who was insanely jealous, who she had lied to, became suspicious and went out looking for her. He might have heard some rumors about her relationship with uh, Corey Rossman in that they had met uh, at the uh, Indianapolis 500. Lauren also attended a barbecue after the Indy 500 up on 11th Street that was held out right on the sidewalk in front of the townhouse. And perhaps he went looking for her. And to this day, he's not alibied to my satisfaction because after interviewing a number of his uh, fraternity brothers, uh, the last person that can put eyes on him is at about 2, 2.30 in the morning. So that gives him two hours to roam the street, stand in the shadows on 11th Street, and perhaps he intercepted her on the way out and let his temper get the best of him, and perhaps things went too far with an altercation, and he disposed of her. And then the third scenario is uh, some opportunist on the street saw a, a very petite girl who was intoxicated, who was walking barefoot, who didn't have a phone with her, took advantage and uh, snatched her, put her in a car and drove her away. So those are the three scenarios that 
you know, we have continually looked at uh, during the course of this over 10-year investigation. What was going on in the days leading up to June 3rd and the night that Lauren disappeared? Was there anything unusual happening in her life? Well, Lauren was in an exclusive relationship with Jesse Wolf. You know, they had met much, much earlier in camp uh, where they were counselors. They started uh, going out steady. And uh, Jesse was already enrolled in IU. And Lauren, uh, I guess it was a combination of that her sister Rebecca had uh, attended and graduated from IU. A boyfriend now attended IU. So naturally, she uh, gravitated to that school. So they were keeping steady company. However, Lauren attended the Indy 500, uh, where many of the students went. They slept in tents. And she went, went up with David Rohn and met that whole crew from 11th Street, Rossman. She already knew Rosenbaum years earlier from camp, Mike Beth, and whoever else might have been up there. And from what we learned from interviewing various witnesses, um, Corey Rossman had designs on trying to get with Lauren. Right. Uh, and, uh, and she was wearing a, pro I was told she was wearing a provocative outfit, like short shorts and, uh, you know, uh, a cut-off T-shirt where her midriff was showing. And I think somebody put that on social media and perhaps... Jesse Wolf had viewed that, and he may, may have become incensed over that, or at least get his jealousy juices flowing. Then after they came home, there was a barbecue, which Lauren attended, which I'm told they set up a grill on the, on the curb right in front of uh, the two townhouses, and a bunch of people attended, and drank beers out of a cooler and ate hot dogs and hamburgers. So that was another meeting. And then the night she disappears, she's invited to the pregame party at Rosenbaum's apartment. So that's three times that she's with Rossman. Uh, now, you know, kids talk, students talk. I'm quite confident it came to Jesse Wolf's attention that Rossman was hanging around with his girlfriend. So you guys got involved in mid-September? Yep. Which was a few months after she had already been missing. Um, tell me a little bit about that experience and, you know, just feel free to walk me through everything. Well, the Spira family, uh, Rob and Charlene, and I had become familiar with the case just like everyone else across the country. The searches were on all the, all the news media, press conferences were held, and uh, you know, I watched, having no idea that 
would soon become involved in the case. And I followed along in the media, like millions of others. And then we got a call from the Spiro family. Um, and uh, there was some uh, telephone conference calls. And then they came in to meet with us. And they decided to, you know, amp up the investigation by hiring private investigation agency to complement what the police were doing. And so I went out there with Bo Deedle, three other investigators, uh, in the middle of September, checked into a hotel, met with Rob and Charlene Spira out there because they wanted to show us some things that were not public at that time. And they did so. And we saw the video that you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. on one of your uh, podcasts. Uh, and nobody had seen that at that time. But the Bloomington police showed them those videos. They were communicating at that point. Yes. Okay. And so after being thoroughly briefed by uh, Robin Charlene, we set up an appointment to go with our team to BPD. And they kept us waiting out in the waiting area for a bit. And then they called us into their conference room. And there were a few lieutenants, there was the captain and chief Dikoff. And we expressed to them that we were there to support them to help them, to share any information that we uncover. And I remember, you know, Bo was very, very plain with them that we wish to work with them in a total spirit of cooperation. It wasn't a, a matter of one-upsmanship or, you know, keeping secrets so we can take credit if we're able to find her. We were going to share everything, and that was our, our intention. And then after we expressed our desire to work with them, Dikoff, uh told us in no uncertain terms, would they be working with us? Would they be sharing any information with us? Um, they'll listen if we have something to say, but it's not going to be a two-way street. It's basically going to be a one-way street. Is that unusual? I mean, in your experience when you're working with other police bureaus, is that...? In most instances, uh, you're not always welcome with open arms, but with the probably hundreds of agencies that BDA has interacted with over the many years. I've been here more than 25 years. Um, in most instances, you get at least partial cooperation. And in most instance, instances, when you turn over some helpful piece of information to that agency, they're appreciative. Um, this was not the case at all with uh, Bloomington Police Department. So, Bo was quite... Uh, put off 
we were all upset uh, at the uh, lack of enthusiasm uh, that they showed towards us being involved and even us being present in their town. Um, he made a statement to the press and then they, you know, dug that line in the sand even, even deeper. Right. And uh, it was plain that we were on our own. So in the uh, three weeks that we spent there, uh, we located and interviewed, I guess, probably between 40 and 50 people who were involved in some way, shape, or form with Lauren uh, during her time prior to her disappearance during her time in Bloomington. A lot of students, but there were people that worked in the bar manager of Yogi's and a woman that worked in a hairdressing shop and, and things of that nature. And um, when I would complete an interview with any of these witnesses, I was always careful to ask, have you been interviewed by the Bloomington Police Department? Now let's note, keep in mind, this is the middle of September and Lauren went missing in the beginning of June. And probably 75% of the people that we interviewed had not ever been contacted by the Bloomington Police Department. And these were some really critical witnesses right. that may have had some important information. So it seems like, from what you're telling me, they weren't doing a thorough enough job from the beginning. Uh, yeah, that would be, to put it mildly, okay. there were many, many students who were in Lauren's life that were never interviewed. When we were there in, in September, and we were there probably until the first week in October, and uh, many of these people were never contacted. And just to stay there, over the last 10 years, you know, we've been contacted with God, countless tips from, from people. And many, many of these people have shared with us that, you know, I, I contacted the Bloomington Police Department two weeks ago or three weeks ago or a month ago, and I never heard back from them. So I'm reaching out to you now. Do you think that has any possibility to do with the school and their relationship with the school? Because there can't be that much stuff going on in Bloomington that they would be so busy that they're not looking into one of the biggest cases that's happened in the vicinity. Uh, you know, I've talked with lieutenants, uh, captains from the Bloomington Police Department. Uh, I don't I don't even try to communicate with the chief. But in my, you know, being a cop for 23 years in the NYPD, I mean, these guys want to find Lauren. Okay. You know, I, you know, I'm being critical 
where I see, you know, some things lacking. But when you get down to the heart of it, the BPD wants to find more. I just don't know if they're willing to go to any lengths to do it. Or whether or not they have the, the autonomy yeah. to do it. Right. Um, I spoke to an unnamed member of the department who was uh, in the middle of this investigation. And uh, the chief rules with an iron fist, you know. So um, where you might have a member of the department that would like to share information, largely they're unable to for fear of retribution to their career from the chief. That's my take on it. Interesting. And I know that's one of the things that I also alluded to in one of the episodes was just how these small-town bureaus operate and, you know, what motivates them. Clearly, as you just said, the chief rules runs a very tight ship. I mean, it makes you think what is motivating him or influencing him aside from just wanting to solve the case. But if there's any, you know, external factors that might be involved, I don't know. But it makes you think. Listen, I know IU is a business. It's the lifeblood of Bloomington, you know. It pumps in revenue. So, you know, whenever business and dollars and cents uh, become intertwined in things, it makes people maybe not act the way they should act. Right. So you were in Bloomington. You started interviewing people. You obviously approached the boys that were with her that night and Jesse. So tell me a little bit about those interactions. So I was up on 11th Street. It was an afternoon. And I was up there with my team. And I wanted to see if I could talk to Corey Rossman. And so, you know, we're New York City detectives. So when you go to uh, a townhouse or something, oftentimes there's a vestibule, you know, that you walk into. And then there's a couple of mailboxes. Right. You know. So one of my detectives were in front of the door. We're knocking on the door and there's no answer. So he thought, maybe there's a vestibule. He opened the door, and it opened maybe about four inches. And all of a sudden, Corey Rossman got a little glimpse of his face through the crack in the door, slammed it shut, and we didn't realize that you open the door, you're right in their living room or the, in their apartment. So there was no vestibule. It was an honest mistake. I'm calling the police. So we're there with good intentions, right. not there to commit a crime. I said, fine. We waited for the police to respond. And they did respond. And they did respond quickly. Not only did two police cars respond, but Carl Salzman, his attorney, who had an office right down the block Across on College, the street, yeah. College Avenue, he ran up on foot. And so I showed my 
identification. I told them on purpose. I said, we met yesterday with your chief, with your captain, with a couple of lieutenants, with the whole, you know, top brass of your police department. We're here to try to find Lauren Spear and find out what happened to her. So we were put on notice that uh, told we were lucky we weren't arrested for trespass. And uh, so we uh, naturally didn't interview Corey Rossman. So then... Were you ever we, able to get an interview with him? No, that was never. It. Corey okay. Rossman, I have never talked to. And he's I put him under surveillance during that period of time. And, uh, and on subsequent trips to Bloomington, months later, you know, um, and he was out and about driving around in his Jeep, I think it was, and he was with a pretty young girl picking up some beers or something from a convenience store and then Just on with his driving life. like a maniac in a pouring rain up on Walnut where we couldn't pursue them. It wasn't a pursuit. We just wanted to surveil him. And while he was riding around the town with this young girl, like he didn't have a care in the world, and it was only a short time since the disappearance of Lauren. Mike Beth, we sat on the house. We watched them party. We watched them go next door and this and that, uh, you know, on Thursday nights, Friday nights. Like nothing ever happened. Like they didn't miss a beat. We put Mike. Uh, we put the house under surveillance, and Mike Beth came out. I th- think he was in a vehicle, and we followed the vehicle, and he went to a sandwich shop right in the middle of town, and he went in to order a sandwich, and we went into the sandwich shop. And he was online getting his sandwich, and when he turned around, I was there with one of my detectives. We identified ourselves, and I gave him my business card. And they said, Mike, would you mind sitting down with me? place was empty, a bunch of empty tables. And he was so nervous. But he acquiesced. He agreed to sit with us. Okay. So we interviewed him for an hour. And the business card that I gave him when I first walked up to him in, in the uh, sandwich shop, by the time the interview was over in one hour, was like a wet piece of Kleenex tissue. His hands were sweating so profusely that the card was illegible and it was falling apart. It was so wet. Was he open with you? Was he Well, yeah, I mean, he answered the questions. Like, what happened that night? Well, you know... I stayed home. I had a paper due the next day. Uh, I was under a deadline. So after the uh, pregame, uh, I wasn't going out. I didn't want to drink. I had to, you know, be on my computer. I had to do the research. I had to write the paper. And then Corey comes home with Lauren. And they're both intoxicated. And... Uh, Lawrence sits down in the living room, and uh, Corey is so drunk 
I convince him to go upstairs to his bedroom to lay down. And when Corey goes up, he collapses and vomits on the stairway, on the rug, going up to his room. Mike says he helps him up the stairs, plops him in his bed, and then he goes down to continue working on his paper. And basically, he, he said that Lauren uh, refused to sleep on the couch. He says, uh, you know, sleep on the couch. I got to do this work. And I guess she was talking. And then to get rid of Lauren, he brought her next door to Jay Rosenbaum's. And he knew that Jay Rosenbaum knew her for a while because they met prior to college. And as I said previously, he made Lauren Jay Rosenbaum's problem. And he went back to do his paper. That's the essence of what he told us. Right. And that was the only time? Did you speak again after that? Never. Okay. Uh, Jay Rosenbaum, uh, we interviewed. You know, Jay told us how he knew Lauren from from camp, and that, um, you know, he drew the pregame, and she attended, she came up with David Rome, um, attended the party, and when the pregame was over, and he, you know, he told us that she attended the Indy 500, attended the barbecue that they had thrown, and, uh, was he friends with Jesse at all since they all went to camp together? I mean, did he have any personal relationship with Jesse? I don't recall okay. if, if he had a personal relationship. Um, I don't believe so. Okay. But it, it could have been. Right. And so, uh, you know, he gave us, gave us an interview uh, in the presence of his lawyer, answered the questions, and uh, that was it. Some years later, wanted to go back at him. So uh, I went up to Michigan. He had graduated and started some sort of a business with David Blesnick in uh, the, the town, suburban town outside of Detroit. Looked like a very wealthy town. Yeah, it's an affluent town. And uh, I found his Range Rover parked on the street because I had seen it in Bloomington many times. And so uh, I was with an, another private investigator out of Detroit who kind of was my guide. And we sat on it for a number of hours. And sure enough, at the end of close of business, he came out and I confronted him on the sidewalk near his vehicle. And he was like, like his jaw dropped when he saw me. Like, what are you doing here? And I said, I have some follow-up questions. And he says, well, uh, real nervous. Uh, I have an appointment. And he looked at his watch. Uh, but, uh, you know, call me at, uh, you know, 6 o'clock. Or I'll meet you at uh, 6 o'clock. Might have been about 3.30 or 4.00. 
And so we called him and he said, meet me at uh, a Starbucks. It was somewhere near his home. And I went to the Starbucks and I was waiting for him. And he kept the appointment along with his mother. And we re-interviewed him and basically in some substance he mirrored what he had told us. Didn't add anything. Uh, there was nothing, you know, explosive or eye-raising information in this second interview. And I asked him if he would be willing at our expense to fly to New York if he wanted to bring his mom or his dad. Fly to New York, we'll pay for his airfare and his accommodations in a hotel in New York City and take a polygraph test here in our office. Or if that didn't work for him, we would fly with our polygraphist to Michigan and do it there. And he agreed. So I left Michigan thinking, okay, we have, we've accomplished something here. We're going to get him to take a poly. And I got back to New York, and um, the very next afternoon, I got a call from his father saying, he was very polite. Uh, Mike, you know, uh, we had a family meeting, and uh, we're going to uh, decline to uh, have uh, uh, Jay submit to the polygraph. And that was it. And you guys never spoke again after that. Has there been efforts on either end? Uh, obviously, the family, I know, has tried and... Yeah, nobody's cooperative. No one. And uh, Blesnick, his buddy, now then at that time had become his business partner, but you know, rewind to June 2011, Blesnick was in town, and I had never had the opportunity to interview David Blesnick. So while I was in Michigan, I said, listen, Jay, you've been, you know, generous with your time. You sat sat with us uh, and you allowed us to interview you. While I'm here, could you arrange a sit-down so I can talk to David Blesnick? He says, I'll see what I can do. The next morning, uh, I reached out. Jay said, David won't refuses to be interviewed by you. So I left town, and then the next day I got the call from the father saying, no, uh, we're going to rescind uh, that, and we're not going to allow our son to be interviewed. So he won't be coming to New York, and there's no need for you to fly back here with your polygraphist. End of story. So that was shut down.
Okay, so then obviously Jesse Wolf was the outlier that evening. He was at home, so he said. Um, so what was your experience like when you were talking with him? So according to Jesse, he was uh, watching the NBA finals with his fraternity brothers. Now, he lived in a house with three or four other guys uh, at Ninth and Fess, but because they were so uh, fractured, you know, living in various houses because they were thrown off campus, the main, the main uh, group to watch that game was a block or two away from Ninth and Fess. And so Jesse claimed to have been there. Then he came home and uh, was talking to one of his roommates uh, and then went to bed. So we interviewed the roommates in that house. And one of the roommates told us uh, that Jesse was home with him that night, you know, uh, which was you know, a conflicting statement, you know. Um, and going over the notes from various interviews, we said, hey, wait, this guy here is saying something contradictory to what other people in Jesse is saying. And so they're all graduated, they're all in their new jobs, and this guy was working here in Midtown on the east side, and I showed up at his office, and... Uh, when he, when he saw me, he, he went white. You know? I said, can we go into a conference room and talk? He was working for a media group or something. And uh, I said, well, I said, uh, you know, your fraternity brother said Jesse was here watching the game with them. However, you say he was home. And, you know, he did the old homina homina. He didn't know what to say. I misremembered. I got it wrong. Something so. But the last person, the last fraternity brother in Jesse's house sees him at 2.30. That gives ample time for him to do whatever he wanted between... 2.30 and 4.15, 4.20, And he could have walked, you know. Did he have a car, to your knowledge? He had a car. Um, he had a Nissan, I think it was a Murano or something. Okay. And I was told that the police examined it. But I'm sure Lauren of had course. been in that car right. more than a hundred times. But from what I understand, the examination of the car took place in front of the house at 9th and Fess. So would they do an examination with flashlights? You know, uh, know yeah. instead of taking it to a proper facility and, and to do forensics to see if there's blood or anything along those lines and any 
any physical evidence that you know might be helpful to the investigation. And to my knowledge, that was not done. An examination was merely done in front of the house. So you spoke to Jesse in Bloomington? Right. And then did you speak after that? Yeah, so Jesse couldn't graduate with the rest of the crew. Uh, he had to stay and graduate. Right, right, right. That later. happens. And I was there during that time, just before graduation. So I contacted him, and I said, Jesse, I'm back in town. How about I buy you a steak dinner and a beer? Let's sit down. Got a few more questions. He says, oh, okay. And uh, then I got a call uh, from his father saying that's not going to happen. And then that was it. There was no more And then he graduated the next day, and he flew back east. And he abandoned his apartment. He still owed rent on the apartment, and uh, he was out of uh, the fraternity house. He was living in, a, in one of the high-rises over on uh, college, college Avenue. And uh, some time went by, and he had left some stuff in his apartment. And uh, the uh, landlord, who I had been in contact with, said, look, if he doesn't come back and, you know, this stuff is unclaimed. I've got to throw it out. So if you want to take a look at it, I said, yeah. So he allowed me to, you know, stroll around the apartment. and mo But there was a, a dresser and a bed. And, and we went through some stuff. We found, uh, you know, some some notebooks from school, and uh, we did find a, a pair of uh, uh, woman's underwear, uh, a, uh, a thong. Um, there were some other items. We photographed everything. Uh, we notified, I notified Lieutenant Bill Parker that I invited them to come, and they declined to come because they didn't have a search warrant. I said, well, I'm not, I'm a private investigator. I'm not sworn law enforcement, so I'm going to go take a look, and I did. And we boxed up everything because the landlord was going to box it up and, and throw it out. Mm -hmm. And I said, Lieutenant Parker, I have a bunch of stuff from Jesse's apartment. They're going to throw it away. So uh, it was my understanding he was going to uh, apply for a search warrant. And it was stored in the landlord's uh, office uh, under lock and key. And BPD uh, eventually retrieved it. What they did with it, no clue, because once again, they don't talk to us. To your knowledge, um, because it's been said that he was texting with Lauren back and forth that night, do you know if the police ever searched any phone records? Were there any 
cell phone tower pings that might have indicated actually his whereabouts that evening? Or is that just stuff that they would have not communicated with you? They definitely would not have communicated that with me. Okay. One other thing that I failed to mention, you know, and it, it was brought up to me by a number of people when we're talking about Jesse Wolf. He wanted to go study abroad and I think he didn't do it because of Lauren and a few people had told me that he had a resentment against Lauren that she might have, you know, robbed him of that opportunity to go abroad. So there's the possibility that there was tension building for sure. Yes. And another thing I know that we also spoke about was there were no cameras from the house on Fest to 11th in college. There would have been no cameras had he gone looking for her. With my, my team, we scoured that route from Fess down to college, and there were absolutely no cameras that would have captured a pedestrian or a vehicle passing. Okay. So he could have very well walked that route undetected. Okay. And at least with Jesse and Lauren's relationship, I mean... Were they committed to each other? What was his level of interest? Well, Jesse had told us when we had the opportunity to interview him that he wanted to marry Lauren. And Lauren, Lauren's response was, I'm too young to get married. Uh, if you clear it with my parents, then I would accept your proposal. But he also... In addition to that, he said, when I met Lauren and once I fell in love with Lauren, I wanted to lock her up and make her mine. To me, that shows, you know, extreme possessive, possessive traits. And I would think someone's messing with your possession, i.e. Corey Rossman, you know, seeing Lauren and being out with him would make Jesse extremely jealous. Especially given the time he's already committed and failing to go abroad because of her. I yeah, he, he wanted to go abroad. And, you know, I was told by a number of witnesses that, you know, um, she didn't. He didn't go abroad because of Lauren. And... He kind of resented that. So he invested all this time and effort into the relationship. And, you know, Lauren is hanging out with another another guy at the Indy 500, going up to his house for a barbecue, going to, uh, going, uh, hanging out with him at a uh, uh, pregame. And then hanging out with him at, at sports. 
and leaving with him and going back to his place. You know, um, and as I stated before, we don't know where Jesse was with 100% degree of certainty. But you did that mention time. that they were all at Smallwood the next day or the day after. And his so reaction. after Jesse reported her uh, missing to the police, uh, they went back to Smallwood. And Jesse was with some of her closest friends. And uh, he was saying things like, she's dead. I know she's dead. And people were saying, Jesus, you know, take it easy, Jesse. We don't know she's dead. She might just be sleeping it off somewhere. She's going to be okay. Oh, I know I'm never going to see her again. I know she's dead. And that, to me, so early on, is kind of extreme. Especially when he was the one who reported her and and didn't stay to search for her. I mean, that's all very suspect. Yeah, he left. He left town on the sixth with uh, with his uh, parents. That's crazy. Just saying. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Zach Oaks, um, just specifically if. To your knowledge, again, do you know anything more about what exactly was said during that fight that occurred at Smallwood between him and Corey or the other boys that were involved? Were you ever able to talk to them? Yeah, I talked to the uh, two. Well, Zach Oaks was with, there were three all together, I believe. And I believe I spoke to all three of them. So they, they encounter... Uh, Corey and Lauren, and Lauren is in bad shape. She's like leaning up against the wall, and she was kind of out of it, dazed. And when when these guys get off the elevator, one of them knew Lauren and said, "Hey, she's not okay. You know, take her back to her room." Corey was like uh, trying to be a tough guy. No, I got this. Yeah, she's all right. And, you know, no, she's not all right. Take her back to her room. And I guess they urged him to do that a few times. He wasn't being cooperative. He was in, insistent that he was going to leave Smallwood with Lauren. And uh, as they went back and forth, Corey dropped an F-bomb, and Zach Oaks, with a right hook, dropped Corey. And he went down hard, I'm right. told. And that gives him his claim that he suffered a concussion. But I did observe his actions after that, and uh, he looked mobile enough to me when he was helping Warren across that vacant lot up to 11th Street. And then aside from the boys, right, there have been a lot of theories or tips that have been reported. There was that one from the inmate, Corey Hammersley, that was very public. I mean, was there any substance to that? No, we checked that out. We interviewed Corey Hammersley in, in jail. We went deep into his background. Just a guy who had a 
you know, drug-induced, psychotic episode where he was naked in the streets of uh, Bloomington, and he was armed with a gun, and he was con confronted by patrol officers, and, uh, you know, he fired shots at the police. Uh, so at the end of the day, I think he was sentenced to, you know, 30-plus years in prison for attempted murder of a police officer. Um, but, you know, along those lines, over the last 10 years, if I had a guess, I would say we got information from people in state prisons, local jails, in multiple counties in the state of Indiana, uh, claiming that they shared a a cell with someone who was responsible for Lauren's disappearance. Uh, we have, you know, I have Bill Benjamin, uh, who's a former uh, homicide uh, detective, and uh, he spent a career in IMPD, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police. He retired as a, uh, a chief. Bill came on board with me, oh, about seven, seven years ago, um, and so when tips like that come in, I communicate with uh, Bill Benjamin, and he's driven all over the state of Indiana, uh, Indiana and he's in, conducted interviews uh, and followed up all of these tips, and our office here at Bo Dealer Associates, we do backgrounds these tipsters and these prisoners and nothing, it, it, they've all turned out to be dead ends. We had a tip about two years ago that, you know, I thought might have had some, some substance to it. So a woman calls me, nice married woman, uh, who purchased the house uh, in a county, you know, probably about 20 miles outside of Bloomington, somewhere between Bloomington and Indianapolis. And she says when they purchased the house, they took it over from an, old, an older man who had died, and there was a big wooden desk. And on that wooden desk, what, dozens of articles and photographs of Lauren Spear. So, you know, that that got my attention. Of course. And then as we look into the old man, I think he was now deceased, we find he had a son who served on the Indianapolis Police Department who was fired for being a pedophile. So now I'm really interested in this house. Next thing that comes out of this nice woman's mouth is, you know, with moving into this house. So we threw everything away. So she says, but there is something interesting. So there's a crawl space under the house and there's a big mound of dirt in the crawl space in the middle of the house, under the house. So I called Bill Benjamin, and he goes to the scene, and uh, he's under the house with a flashlight, 
And he calls me up. He says, Mike, son of a bitch, there's a big mound of dirt under this house in the middle of the house. And he says, there's only two feet of clearance. I said, Bill, could you get some cadaver dogs there? Bill makes all kinds of phone calls, calls all, all kinds of favors in. And, you know, some days after the discovery, the dogs go into crawl space with the handlers and they hit on the mound. And he's, I'm getting a blow by blow description of this. I said, holy shit. You know. And then we get uh, a college with uh, some uh, archaeologist professors to do a controlled dig in the mound. There was nothing there. So, you know, the ebbs and flows, the highs and lows of this case, just when you think maybe we're getting a break, and then it just, you know, it dissolves and it doesn't pan out. And we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds you know, early on, we were inundated with psychics. And uh, it broke my heart because the family was so desperate. You know, they would have, they would, you know, tried anything. But after getting burned so many times, and, you know, all of these things, having, at the end of the day, no meat on the bone, we, we then, at, at my urging the family finally realized that a psychic is not going to bring Lauren home, not going to find Lauren. So, but we had to deal with dozens and dozens of them. Then we had gotten a number of tips from people, and some of these were jailhouse tips, that there was a crew in Mars Hill. The Sons of Silence crew? Yeah. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm biker gang yeah. uh, that were big into meth and, you know, uh, meth labs and murder and mayhem. And there was a woman who kind of controlled that gang and some other people. And, you know, we did a lot of investigation into that. And I will tell you, we got great cooperation from the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department uh, with some of these tips. Unlike Bloomington, they, uh, they, they have been very helpful and they have worked in a spirit of cooperation with us as much as they possibly have, can. And, uh, and these, I hid doors and searched properties in Morris Hill and Everything is just comes up empty. So, um, but you know, you, as I, I often say when I'm talking with Rob and Charlene, we can't leave any stone unturned because if you take it for granted, ah, this one's bullshit. We're not going to look at it. That could be the one. So you have to take the time, expend the effort and the energy to find out if it's the one or if it's not, you know? And that continues to this, to this day.
and the white truck was ultimately rolled out? Ultimately, I was told that, uh, that BPD uh, identified the driver and the owner of the truck, and they were satisfied that it wasn't connected to Lauren's disappearance. So I have to go by what they, what they said publicly. Okay, so let's go back to Jesse for a second, um, because it's been said that, you know, he was extremely depressed for a long time after Lauren disappeared and couldn't get out of bed and, you know, couldn't hold a job and whatnot. I mean, that could obviously mean a variety of things. Well, you know, uh, right after he reported Lauren missing and people started flocking to Bloomington for searches, etc. And he only stayed in town a very short time before he went home. Which is odd. Uh, yeah. You know, he, uh, accompanied by his father, was banging on uh, Corey Rossman's door, you know. It was a big scene. I think the police were called to it, you know. And, uh, I don't know, was he Blaming Corey Rossman, or is he establishing an alibi for himself? Like, I didn't do anything. I wasn't with her, you know. I'm mad as hell, and I want answers from Corey Rossman. Or was it bullshit? Did you get the sense from your investigation that any of these families could have had friends in high places or anything like that that would be able to kind of help keep things quiet? I don't think keep things quiet by bribing someone or, but they all have so much to lose because they, you know, they, all these kids come from affluent families right. who have great, you know, uh, great designs that their kids are going to be top lawyers, doctors, uh, nuclear physicists, you know, whatever they successful business people. And I think they would do anything uh, to keep their, their kid out of trouble, if they could. Um, I know that I went back, when I mentioned earlier, that I went back because there was a conflicting statement where with one of Jesse Wolf's roommates that told me he was home watching the NBA Finals and then a bunch of people told me Jesse was down the block at the other house watching it and came home after the game. And when I did that second interview with that guy in his office in New York, that roommate, you know, he, uh, he immediately called Jesse and I got a call that night from Alan Wolf, Jesse's father. And Alan Wolf says, uh, Mike, I understand you, uh, you went to interview uh, Jesse's roommate uh, this afternoon at, you know, in New York City. And, and uh, where are you going with this? I said, where am I going with this? I said, Alan, I'm trying to find Lauren's spirit. That's where I'm going with this. And as far as the details of how I'm going there, that's none of your business. 
so it seems, the end of the conversation. So it seems like... But it was probably the second or third time I had gotten a call from Alan Wolf running interference for his son Jesse. Right, that's what I was going to say. It seems like a lot of these kids' parents have been kind of doing their dirty work, mm -hmm. so to speak. I would agree with that statement. You know. Did you ever talk to his mom? No. Jesse's mom? No. But she was I, I, very from what I, Well, from what I hear, Alan Wolf rules the roost in that house. Right. That's what I was told. But obviously we know she gave interviews speaking out against Lauren and the Spear family, which I thought was very bizarre considering this is a family that knows Lauren for a long time. Um, we uh, followed up on an anonymous letter uh, from a family member who strongly believed that Jesse's history, his brother, his father, Alan, basically this anonymous letter told us they were all nuts I've and he that, was actually. capable of that. But again, it's what more can you do if they're not speaking? It just takes one of them to come forward, I guess, right? You know, I often said that, you know, if, if those boys, Rossman, Beth, Rosenbaum, if, if they disposed of Lauren's body, if she died of a heart attack or whatever, I didn't think that they had the stomach, the balls, to keep it on the wraps for as long as they have, if they have them, if they were responsible. However, you know, sometimes investigations, we, we think too much, you know. She was uh, under the influence that night. She had a bad heart. Um, she was probably exhausted. Those boys got out of town, you know, shortly after she was reported missing. The other boy uh, that stayed over at Rosenbaum's apartment, I interviewed a, a girl at a sorority house, and, you know, she stood up for him, and she said that he spent the night with her, so he wasn't there. But he did drive back. To Michigan with Blesnick at a later time. So it just seems like hearing you speak in detail now, you know, these three boys, they were together that evening. They've all pretty much maintained the same statements. It just, Jesse is the outlier, and I'm not positioning him to have done something, but you know, if he is a Look, out of the three scenarios that I pointed out at the beginning, a complete stranger, an opportunist, Jesse Wolf, or the three boys. You know, you could sit here all day and, and, and debate 
each of them a strong possibilities. You know, if Jay Rosenbaum is telling us the truth that he stood on that narrow balcony on the second floor on 11th Street and watched her until she got to the corner and then in the darkness sees, thinks he sees someone in the shadows intersecting with Lauren. Could that be some predator that's roaming the street of Bloomington at, you know, 4.30 in the morning before the sun comes up? Possible. Could Jesse be jealous as shit to to go out, he knows where to look, he knows where those boys live, could he have been waiting for her and intercepted her? Could he be the shadowy figure instead of an opportunist? Answer, yes, possible. He's not alibied at 4.30 in the morning. Less eyes I have on him is 2.30. And then there's, you know, could Lauren have passed away sitting on one of their couches? Answer, yes. So that leaves us with those three scenarios. And to give more weight to one than the other, I still can't separate them. It's 33 and a third for each percent. What, what will help progress this? Just keeping attention on her story? On keeping attention on her story, whether it's this podcast or a TV documentary, something on Netflix in the future, someone knows something. I continually appeal to someone who has information come forward and bring some 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 peace to this family bring some closure to this endless endless case I mean the, the spirit family you know endures so much pain on on Lauren's birthday every year you know on holidays you know the birth of grandchildren and everything is a reminder that Lauren isn't there with them. And uh, so someone knows something. I just asked them to have the courage to step forward, even if it has to be anonymous to protect themselves. Just uh, give us some information so we could uh, bring Lauren home to her family. If listening to Mike triggers any thought or any urge to come forward, please do. If you are infuriated by this case as much as I am, then help. Use social media. Use the tools you have to demand change. Lauren didn't just vanish out one night with a group of friends. That doesn't just happen. Someone knows something. Why is nobody talking? Why aren't the persons of interest doing everything in their power to find their friend or their loving girlfriend? 
Why are the parents of these persons of interest so involved? Let's keep asking these questions. Let's keep applying the pressure until someone cracks. Never give up hope for Lauren and every family who suffers the same way. Lauren Spears' case is still an open investigation. Anyone with information regarding her disappearance, please reach out to Bo Deedle and Associates. For updates from her family, follow the official Lauren Spear updates page on Facebook. Finding Lauren is hosted and produced by me, Kira Breslin, edited by J. Cody Spellman, engineering and original music by Monty Weber, logo designed by Josh Stauffer. Special thanks to USA Today Networks for use of media. For links to sources, clips, and more information, you can follow at Finding Lauren Podcast on Instagram. <laughs>